0: I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is.
1: From the political science department at UW-Madison.
0: Am I exasperated? Absolutely I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger.
2: This country's gone through tough times before and we're going to do it again.
0: And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. Today on 1050 Bascom, we welcome Professor David Cannon back to the podcast. Professor Cannon was instrumental in kicking off our Election 2020 series back in January. That was 10 months ago, and since then, American politics has been rocked by a number of political earthquakes, including a highly politicized global pandemic raging across the country with a record number of infections over the last week, a renewed civil rights movement, and more active and vocal militia groups. Tomorrow, the nation will hold a historical presidential election to determine the future of American political leadership for at least another four years. Some analysts are predicting we won't have an outcome for days, or weeks, or even months. Others worry about political unrest and even violence on election day, or shortly thereafter. There's certainly a lot to talk about, on this special election eve edition of 1050 bascom so professor cannon welcome back to 1050 bascom thank you so much for being with us today good to be with you i'm very happy to have you and of course you're with us because tomorrow is a very special occasion it's the presidential election And so, of course, we got to get right into it and really try to just do a election eve analysis of what we might just be getting ourselves into. So first, I want to talk about just the state of the race. The polls predict a relatively significant popular vote advantage for Biden going in, but with the very important caveat that Trump could pull an electoral college win. And this is kind of the general read of the polls, but what is your read of the polls today? And also taking one more step from that, what do you feel like would be President Trump's most likely pathway to the presidency at this point in your view?
2: Yeah, so you're exactly right that Joe Biden has a pretty comfortable lead in the popular vote in most polls. The polling average has him anywhere from eight to nine points ahead right now. Uh, which means he's almost certain to to win the popular vote, but there are a few uh, potential paths to victory for Donald Trump in the Electoral College. Now, those also are relatively low probability right now, according to most of the modelers, that's somewhere around a 10% chance uh, right now, whereas in 2016, he had about a 30% chance, 29%, I think, in the last uh, 538 forecast in 2016, whereas now it's it's only a 10% chance for Trump with the Electoral College. But it definitely could be done. And the, the path to victory for him is to win the key states he won last time, like Florida, Ohio, Georgia, North Carolina. Uh, those are all right now pretty close, and in fact, Biden's ahead in four states, including all of them except for Ohio. And Biden's also narrowly ahead, somewhat shockingly in Georgia. That was a state that was not at all in play four years ago. And right now, uh, Biden has a very narrow lead there, not within the margin of error, but still the fact we're even talking about Georgia is what makes some people think that it's gonna be pretty tough for President Trump to get that path to uh, 270 electoral votes. But if he does have a path, it definitely is winning those key states I just mentioned. And then Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is really the, the critical battleground state uh, of the so-called blue wall states from 2016 that he managed to carry Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Of those three, Pennsylvania is the one that he looks like he has the best shot. Uh, Biden has is, is widened the lead a bit in Wisconsin. He's also a little more comfortably ahead in, in Michigan. Uh, so if President Trump's going to win the Electoral College, it's going to have to be uh, through Pennsylvania, I think. And that's why he was uh, in the state yesterday. He went to four different stops in Pennsylvania yesterday. And so pretty pretty clearly the president sees Pennsylvania as his key state right now.
1: We've talked about this ad nauseum at this point, but can you outline for us why we are treating the polls a little bit differently this round in 2020 than we did you know, in post-election analysis in 2016?
2: Well, yeah. So the the polling is getting a lot of attention this time around because the state polls were... Off in 2016. Now it is important to note that they they weren't that far off. And you know, nationally, the, the national polls were within the margin of, of error for Hillary Clinton because she did win the popular vote by two percent of the, the national vote. And so that was well within the you know, so the four-point lead that she had in the poll, she ended up winning by two points. And so that's you know, that's within the margin of what's normally expected. That's not a big miss, that's a small miss then some of the state polls were off more, including Wisconsin, where you know every poll from Labor Day to election day except for one had Clinton ahead and sometimes ahead you know, fairly comfortably. And so in some of the state polls, the, the reason that they were off is that many of them didn't account for didn't wait for education. And so the whites without a college degree who voted heavily for Donald Trump were underrepresented in some of those state polls. and that's one reason that they, they were off. And also, there weren't a lot of high-quality polls in that last week where the, the, the when, they, when Comey announced the opening up of the email inquiry again into Hillary Clinton, that was shown to, to move the numbers by about two, three points in that, that last week. And there weren't that many high-quality polls in the field, state polls, that picked up that movement. And then finally, the third thing that happened was the big shift of the undecided voters, going towards Donald Trump. They broke for Trump about two to one. And so all of those things are are different this time around. We we didn't have any October surprise. I mean, they tried the whole Hunter Biden thing, but that was a a non-story from the beginning. Uh, So that didn't gain any traction. Uh, They now are correcting, uh, waiting for college education. Uh, So that problem's been taken care of. And we have a much smaller percentage of the undecideds. Uh, We we have about half as many people uh, who are undecided today Compared to four years ago, and so all of those things, you know, point toward uh, a set of polls that I think are more trustworthy this time around than they were four years ago. And also, the other thing about the polling in this election, it's been very stable. Like, there's been very little movement overall in the polls for the last about three, three, four months. And so it does seem like they're they're converging to the same answer right now, which is that you know uh, Joe Biden, you know, while he's not guaranteed to win, is it certainly favored to win tomorrow.
1: Absolutely, and I know. Nate Silver of FiveThirtyEight has talked a lot about how there were narratives in 2016 that the mass news media would take certain polls and certain outcomes and kind of just run with them. And Nate Silver thinks that the media, in quotation marks, is doing better this cycle. Would you agree with that?
2: Yeah, I think so. No, there's no doubt. And it's not just five thirty-eight. I think all the pollsters are being more responsible about talking about the level of uncertainty around polling and that even if polls are are showing a 70% chance of winning or 80% chance of winning. Yeah, that means that 30 or 20% of the time, you know, the, uh, the unexpected outcome is going to happen. And I think they are doing a better job of talking about that and pointing out that, you know, you have to look at a, another whole range of, of factors, like in this race, the big unknown right now is the COVID pandemic. Like what impact is that gonna have on, on people actually turning out to vote tomorrow? And is it going to keep a lot of people away from the polls otherwise would have voted we just don't know the answer that we you know we have the likely voter question in the polls that asks people are you certain to vote and they say to pollsters yeah we're going to vote but then maybe when it comes right down to it they decide well it's a little too risky to to go vote And we just don't know really what the impact of that's going to be on turnout now having said that the fact we already have had 94 million people who've already voted um, that means that the impact of that uh you know, the election day turnout isn't as big as it otherwise would be, given we've already had 94 million people vote.
0: Speaking of which, I'd like to drill in a little bit more on this early voting really quickly. You mentioned that at this point, 94 million people have already voted. Can you give us an example or just put this in historical terms for us? Like, I think we know the answer, but is this an exceptionally large number? And what do you think that indicates?
2: It is. This is by far the largest number of people we've ever had vote early. If you look at the the trend line from the early 1990s, To today, the trend is all towards more early voting. Back in the early 1990s, up through about 2000, about 90% of the electorate, a little over 90% in some of those elections, voted on Election Day. Only about 10% voted before Election Day. Some of the the states that were really uh, sort of on the cutting edge of this were Oregon and Washington. They went to all in person, all uh, early voting, all by mail voting 20 years ago, but most states didn't do that. Uh, and so still 90% of the people were, were voting on election day as recently as the year 2000. And then the, the trend just goes you know, straight down in terms of percentage of people voting election day. So in the last couple of elections, it was around 60%. You know, so we had about 40% of the electorate voting before election day in 2016, 60% on election day, 40% voting early. And of those, about half voted by mail, about half voted in-person early voting. So this time around, we're looking at probably two thirds. I mean, already it's been 68% of the 2016 turnout. So we're over two-thirds now. That's assuming the same level of turnout as 2016, and turnout probably is higher. So we'll be somewhere between, say, 60-65% probably of the voters in 2020 having voted before election day. So that's 20, percent more than we've ever had before in the history of the country.
0: And then speaking on this and and mail-in voting and early voting in general, I want to ask if you have any concerns about this volume of voting. Because, you know, on one hand, there are the more unsubstantiated claims that we're seeing mostly come from the president about s- supposed voter fraud or whatever through mail-in voting, which are mostly unsubstantiated But on the other hand, there are more legitimate concerns about the Postal Service being able to handle the volume of votes coming in, and then also recent court decisions in states like Texas and even right here in Wisconsin that have the potential to bar certain mail-in votes coming in if they are past a certain deadline. So. Do you have any concerns about mail-in voting? And if so, what are they?
2: Yeah, so I'd say there are three different categories of concerns. Well, four, if you include the one that's not a concern, which is voter fraud. You mentioned that, that not only is like mostly not a concern, it's entirely not a concern. It just is not something that's real uh, in terms of, of voter fraud. That People who have looked at this systematically have found like out of 250 million votes cast, uh, like two dozen cases of, of verified you know, fraud through voting by mail. So it's, it's a complete non-problem. Um, But then the three issues that do exist, you you touched on two of them, U.S. Postal Service uh, and then the court cases. But I'd add a third one to that, which is a higher rejection rate of the mail-in ballots than you have of in-person ballots. And it's pretty substantial in some states. As many as like 2% of ballots that are mailed in end up getting rejected uh, for a variety of reasons, like here in our April, our April election we had for the state Supreme Court, almost 2%, 1.75% of the ballots in that election were rejected, mostly because of the missing address for the witness. So on the mail and ballot, you have to have a witness, you have to have the address of the witness. Uh, so something like 26,000 ballots were excluded in that election because people forgot to put the address of the witness. And so in an election like this, where you have so many people voting by mail for the first time, they've never done this before. They're more likely to make mistakes, and those mistakes then can lead to their ballot being rejected. Now, in some other states, they're fairly strict on things like uh, signature matching, and that's something that's very subjective. And they've shown that young people and people of color have their mail-in ballots rejected at a higher rate uh, than than older white people. Uh, and there's some. You know, allegations that there's some you know, partisan bias in terms of how these ballots are being rejected. So, so the rejected ballots are, I think, a, a real concern with the mail-in voting. But then the other big one are the court cases. And here, the, the Supreme Court has been kind of mixed in their rulings. And some states allowing the counting of ballots that arrive after election day to go forward as long as they're postmarked by election day. In other states like Wisconsin, you know, saying, saying they do have to actually uh, arrive at the clerk's office by election day in order to be counted. And so we'll see if, that, if there are any additional rulings that, you know, uh, will potentially exclude some more more votes. My guess is at this point, under the, the doctrine of the Purcell principle, it's called, that you don't want to mess with election rules any more this close to an election, because you could be basically changing the rules in the middle of the game. You really shouldn't do that. If people voted in good faith, sent their ballot in under one set of rules, you can't change the rules after they've already voted. That would simply be disenfranchising people Uh, for, you know, for no legitimate reason. And so I I don't think the court will go that route. Some people are worried about Pennsylvania uh, with the, you know, the Supreme Court deadlocked 4-4 in the earlier case there. And the three dissenters hinted that, hey, maybe we'll take this up again after the election. I I just don't think they're going to go there. but, But it certainly is a possibility.
1: Looking ahead now to as polls are closing and as results are starting to trickle in. There's a lot of uncertainty about whether or not we will know the result tomorrow night, Tuesday night, or, you know, whether we'll know Wednesday morning, Wednesday afternoon, Thursday, Friday, a month from now. What right. right? What are some scenarios that would need to happen tomorrow night in order for us to know the winner tomorrow?
2: Yeah, so definitely yeah. any of those possibilities you outlined, um, you know, could happen. There's, there's no doubt about that. Uh, and so for first scenario of we know by midnight, like when we go to bed who the winner is, the, the way that happens is Joe Biden carrying Florida and or Georgia. If he wins either of those two states, it's pretty much over for Donald Trump. That one uh, of the forecasters I saw said that if Biden carries either of those states, Trump has like a 1% chance of winning. Like there's almost no path for him to get to 270 if Biden carries either of those. Um, and we should know the the winner in Georgia and Florida, unless it's super close. And that's a, that's the other thing you have to say. So so Biden wins one of those two states, and he wins it by a comfortable enough margin that they can call that by you know late Tuesday night. And that's definitely a possibility. Uh, he leads in both those states right now, but by about you know a little less than around two percent in Florida, a little less than that in, in Georgia. So that's the 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 sort of the easiest way uh, for. Us to know on Tuesday night, you know, throw Ohio into that mix too. It's another state that Trump actually has to win. So if, uh, you know, if Biden ends up carrying any of those states, we should know those results uh, Tuesday night, and then it, it could basically be over. Um, the more likely scenario, I think, is that that either those states are too close, or Trump ends up winning those three states, and it goes down to then counting the the votes in you know some of the states for the results will be trickling in over a period of days. And so if that happens, then it easily could be Wednesday, Thursday, before we know if the results are tighter than are shown right now in the polls. Now, if the polls are accurate, we should know by Tuesday night or Wednesday morning who, that, who won, um, but if the, if the polls are off and Trump does better than the polls are saying, then it could definitely go into uh, you know, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Now, the only way we end up you know, sort of a month from now uh, not knowing who won, would be if we end up with a Florida 2000 situation with Bush versus Gore, where we have a super close election in one of the key states, so that the national result is close. So Pennsylvania or Florida, one of those states, ends up being like the critical state, and we have a, a recount. And then the courts get involved. This drags probably you know up to the Supreme Court. And so that would be the scenario where this could end up you know being like Bush versus score in two thousand and we won't know for a month. That's I'd say that's the least likely of the three possible outcomes.
1: Absolutely. I sure hope it is. I've also been seeing a lot of chatter recently, and this is just something that I'm interested in, but if Pennsylvania is to stay red this round, then there is like a lot of movement and a lot of talk being put out around about the Maine and the Nebraska congressional districts and how that those those can like you know factor in to Biden just eking out a 270 over like a 268 Trump. What, what's your take on the congressional districts? There's been a lot of polling done about them. They're kind of lean. Some of them are definitely more Republican. Do you have a, a quick take on that, I guess?
2: Right, yeah, so those are two that are, uh, so the Omaha district in Nebraska and then is, is leaning towards Biden right now. The rest of Nebraska is going for Trump. Maine's just the other way around, where the the Maine second is leaning towards Trump. The rest of the states uh, going for, for Biden. So so those two are very much in, in play right now. I think again, Biden has a very narrow lead in both of them, like you know one two percent or something. Um, and there's not as much super accurate polling, you know, because it's, it's such a you know smaller smaller district, so they don't get polled as often as as the the states. Um, and so it's not entirely clear you know how those are going to go. Um, but for them to come into play it does have to be obviously like really close. It has to be 269, 269, or you know, 270 to 268. Um, but, but it is, I mean, it's possible. There's, there's a map, in fact, it's a map that I have shown, I've given a lot of talks over the last couple of weeks to different community groups. I have a, a map of the Electoral College that shows a 269, 269 tie, which is it's not that hard to get to that result. Basically you have Trump carrying the blue wall states that he carried, uh, in 2016, I think maybe minus Wisconsin even, and then Biden picking up, I think, Arizona, uh, which then gets us, and then Trump needs, I think, both Omaha and Maine to make that happen. But you can actually get to a 269-269 tie without working too hard at it. So it, it, one of, it that would be like the craziest of all crazy results, but that actually could happen.
1: I sure hope it doesn't.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, that would be, yeah, because then, you know, then it gets thrown in the House of Representatives, you know, and then each state gets one vote. And this, this is the craziest thing about the Electoral College. I mean, the electoral college already is unrepresentative because the small states get, you know, about three times the representation as the bigger states per capita, uh, just because the way that, you know, three electoral votes for the minimum, so the smallest states have a little more than three times the representation as the bigger states in the electoral college. Well, you look at the what happens if it gets thrown into the House and it's one vote per state, that means that the smallest states are getting roughly 60 times the representation as the bigger states. A so little North and South Dakota get the same as California. Um, and that, that just is like, a crazy part about our electoral college is that that could, could actually happen.
0: Well, on the subject of just kind of how crazy this election is going to be, regardless of, of if we hit this fabled electoral tie, is that this really is an unprecedented election between the pandemic and the enthusiasm that we're already seeing in voters and just the massive amounts of early voting things are really, really going to be different. But as a result, I think that might place certain and maybe even heightened responsibilities on the news media to cover it. So if you were an elections media czar, how would you demand that the media handle election coverage, and especially including exit polls tomorrow night and moving forward?
2: Yeah, so I think the most important thing for covering the, the election tomorrow night is to keep on reminding everyone that the election's not over until the votes are counted. This idea somehow that like you know when the clock strikes twelve, you know the, all of a sudden like the election is over. No, the election's over when all the votes are counted. The media just has to keep on saying that over and over and over again. And one way that will help facilitate I think viewer understanding of that is to point out. What percentage of the votes haven't been counted yet? And a, a lot of and they should, they should report that. Um, and especially in the states where early voting has, has been high and they count those votes for, you know, up to 10 days in some cases after they, they come in, as long as they're postmarked by election day. And so it really is important for the media to, to let us know as, as viewers. What percentage of the votes still haven't been counted? You know, by midnight or by one in the morning or whatever, and that will, I think, help people realize. Oh, okay, we still got you know twenty million votes we haven't counted yet. We can't say who the winner is until we we know those twenty million votes, and that that I think will make a a big difference. Now, you mentioned exit polls too as another thing that the media needs to be really cautious about this time around. Exit polls never really were intended to help us predict or forecast what's going to happen ahead of actually counting the votes. They've been kind of misused in that way I think sometimes and and now in this so what they really are intended for is helping us make sense of the election after the fact so we can study why people voted the way they did. Um, But in this election especially the exit polls will not be good for predicting the results of what actually happened on election day for the simple fact of what we've been talking about of the 94 million people who didn't vote on election day because exit polls traditionally have been done by polling people as they exit the polls, Right? that's where the word comes from, is exit polling, like you're, you're leaving the polls, you have a, someone with the a survey a board sitting there asking you questions as you leave your voting place. Well, 94 million Americans have not, are not voting on election day, you're not going to be able to, to get them walking out of the poll. Now, the pollsters are obviously are aware of this. So what they're trying to do is make up for that by calling people who already voted. But that is fraught with error because, first of all, you have to rely on them to be telling the truth that they actually voted. And we know for a fact from earlier polls that people lie about that by about 6% of the people say they voted because they feel guilty like, oh, I should have voted. And so they'll tell the poster, yeah, I voted. And they didn't. And so, so for that reason alone, the exit polls are not going to be as accurate because at least in the previous exit polls we know for a fact the person did vote. We, we see them walking out of the poll and we ask them the questions. But now with the trying to get a handle on the people who voted early, we have to rely on them telling us the truth that they actually did vote. And so it introduces a lot more error into the, the process and makes it so the exit polls really are not as dependable as they, they normally are. Even.
1: Absolutely. Concerning the president and the president's actions that, you know, we're going to see tomorrow, what are your thoughts and concerns about how the president is going to utilize Twitter to say certain things on election day? Like, I guess what I'm asking is, what are your concerns about the president declaring victory in air quotes when there's really just no evidence to back that up? Like I think he's going to tomorrow.
2: Yeah, well, right. I mean, he's pretty much signaled that's his his game plan here is to, to do that. And so I think that the media is aware of this, and they're they're talking about this already. That they're they're not really going to allow that to happen, and because they're they're going to keep on pointing out we still have you know 20 million votes to count or whatever it is, and you know the election's not over till we count those votes. And I, I I'm convinced that the the news media is going to to do that now. Obviously, they can't stop Trump tweeting out uh, his claim of a victory, um, but but everyone's aware that that's going to happen. And so I think that does make it uh, you know, less of a concern than it otherwise would be.
0: To say what we might be thinking and name names, do you trust Fox News to report this right?
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. I and mean, here's a place where the Fox News news desk is completely different than the Fox News opinion people, the Sean Hannity's of Fox News. It's, it's a completely different set of people. In fact, in 2018, Fox News was the first network out of the the four that called the House of Representatives for the Democrats by like 50 minutes. Like they were they were leading that call like by a lot and, you know, annoyed the heck out of a lot of the other Fox News people. But they they nailed that 50 minutes before anybody else. And they if you look back at their their earlier kind of calls, you know, there there was the, the famous one in 2008 in Ohio where Fox was the first one to call Ohio for Barack Obama. And you had Colorado having a meltdown on national TV saying, no, this can't be or my people are telling me it's not so. And they walked back to the to the computer nerd data guys back in the decision room that are like crunching all the numbers with the camera person, went back and talked to these guys in the Fox News decision room. And they said, yeah, the numbers are real. Barack Obama won Ohio. They call it like they see it. And their people running the election desk are good. I mean, they I trust them to, to do the right thing. Hannity, again, those guys will say what they want to say. But the news desk is, is totally separate.
0: All right. And then, you know, kind of speaking, you know, we're alluding to the potentially strong feelings or reaction that people are probably going to feel regardless of, of who wins this election, that people will feel regardless of who wins this election. Do you have any concerns about post-election life in American politics, regardless of the way this election goes?
2: Yeah, no, it's definitely going to be a tense couple of days after the election. And, you know, it doesn't matter which side wins and which side loses. There there, there will be intense reactions for sure. Um, and, you know, the hope is that those, you know, the numbers of people acting violently will be small, and that it won't turn into a, 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 you know, bigger problem, but the potential is there. But the, you know, uh, National Guard, the FBI, law enforcement, they're all very aware of this. Everybody's on high alert. Uh, you know, there was articles in the paper today about how retailers in different cities are starting to like, you know, board up their storefronts with plywood like they would to get ready for a hurricane. You know, so people, you know, know that this is going to be a tough couple of days. Uh, and so, I think everyone's preparing for that, and so hopefully we will be ready for whatever can happen. Um, and we just have to, again, just you know, urge for calm and you know, try to make people you know not get you know too uh, too concerned uh, and you know get violent, too violent uh, if their side loses. And that's going to be it's going to be hard to do, but that is a big concern for a lot of folks.
1: What advice do you have for students uh, that are going to be very upset with whatever the result is? Like ways that they can channel that. Things that they can do.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's fine to you know go out and, and protest peacefully, certainly, but but not to, to be violent. And that I think is always what the dividing light is, you know, for First Amendment protected speech and, and that type of speech that is not protected. And so I would urge anyone who is on the losing side um, this week to to protest peacefully and not violently, and then just you know, work to, to win the next election. That's the way democracy works, that we always in this country for more than 200 years have had peaceful transitions of power. That is what has characterized uh, the, you know, our, our success in, in our, our democratic institutions is that respect for the peaceful transition of power. And so that's something that we need to continue to respect to to make our democracy work. And what happens if you lose, you just work all the harder to win the next time around.
0: Speaking of which, you know, you raise the concept of a peaceful transition of power. We were talking to Professor Howard Schweber earlier last month now, as it's already November. And his take was that he thinks that if Donald Trump loses the election, that there still will be a peaceful transition of power and that he will leave the office of the presidency because he didn't think that Trump has it in him to try and resist potentially being thrown into jail or something like that. What do you think would uh, are the chances of a tre- of a peaceful transition of power or do you think that Trump is willing to give up the office of the presidency? if he loses the election.
2: Yeah, I think Trump will eventually give up the office. I, I think and here too, it depends on how big the defeat is. If it's a decisive defeat and, and Biden, so let's say the polls are right and Biden ends up winning, you know, somewhere around 350, 360 electoral votes, um, and it's clear that, that Trump you know lost Florida and Georgia and Ohio. you know, let you know go for it like complete sweep. You know, then you know, Trump has no legs to stand on. I mean, like, there's no way he can try to claim that he should stay in office. Um, if on the other hand, it, it's super close and Biden wins, but let's say it comes down to a contested election in Pennsylvania or something, then I'm sure he'll drag it out as, as long as possible. But then if the, you know, the final count shows that Biden won, uh, I think there's still enough power in the institution of the Republican party um, with the leadership of the Republican Party from people like, you know, Mitch McConnell, um, who will, will say, look, you know, like, like the leadership of the Republican Party went to Richard Nixon when they forced him to resign basically in Watergate. They said, look, the jig is up. Like, you're done. Bye. You need to leave or you're going to be impeached. The same thing's going to happen with Trump. If he loses, you know, people like Mitch McConnell will go to him and say, look, you know, it's time for you to go. And I think Trump will go rather than be like, Forced out, uh, you know, by the Secret Service or, or something that just you know would make him look, you know, like a, a completely you know vanquished loser, which is the, the biggest thing he wants to avoid.
0: If I could just push back on that a little bit, just because I'm curious about honing in, the one thing that I feel like has been the big like a a, a big trend in American politics, especially since this uh, since the time of Richard Nixon is well i guess two things one an erosion of democratic norms and like uh like guide rails of the constitution where parties instead of abiding by these norms for the long-term benefit of democratic consolidation instead will prefer to play constitutional hardball and try to just grab power wherever they can i think that the most Maybe prevalent example of this is the Senate filibuster um, removal in terms of judicial appointments in the Senate, but also, of course, with things like gerrymandering and other terms of uh, voter suppression and other things like that. And then additionally, the other trend that I think we've seen since then is the conflation of personal identity with political identity, where now people are so much more sorted with their party and use their party as a vehicle for their self-expression and identities, that they show a more fierce loyalty to their faction rather than, say, like the country as a whole or democratic institutions in America. So with those trends, are you as confident that the situation we're in is as analogous to essentially one's own party being willing to confine them to democratic institutions As we were in the 60s
2: yeah that's that's a really really good question and i i'll i'll stick to to my sort of view of what's likely to happen if trump loses and you know so the the party elders coming to him and gently showing him out the door i mean i i think that that will happen because if that doesn't happen we no longer have a democracy and, and I don't think that the Republican party is willing to become part of a, an autocracy or dictatorship. I don't think that they're willing to cross that line. I think they, be, they believe, I think, in the American institutions enough you know, to still want to have this country be a democracy. And if they don't recognize the will of the people in terms of electing the president, we no longer have a democracy. And I don't think that the national Republican leadership is willing to cross that line. Now, the second part of your question though, is more troubling. And it ties into the earlier question about potential violence after the election. And there, you're absolutely right, that you know, people, at least some, some segment of the, the parties on, on both the extreme left and right, are more locked into their own identities now being shaped by their, their party attachments and also then vilifying the other side as the enemy and that's something that is relatively new in american politics you're absolutely true it's absolutely true that did not exist back in the 1970s with richard nixon Uh, and so that i think could mean that the the likelihood of of violence is is greater because of that because people are going to feel like personally threatened by having the other side win Um, and you know if they you know the say the Trump supporters really firmly believe that Joe Biden is going to turn America into a socialist state, is going to take away their guns, you know, then that's, you know, that's a real threat to their identity. And so that, that means that there, there is more potential for, for having an extreme reaction. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm more worried about that than I am about the reaction of the Republican leadership to a Trump loss.
1: Absolutely. I just want to ask one last, like, thirty-second question because we haven't covered it. But control of the Senate could obviously change the political landscape of the country, and it all hinges on t- what happens tomorrow. Really quick, what is your take on the situation with the Senate and the chances Democrats have tomorrow? Yeah,
2: so I think the Democrats have between a two-thirds and three-fourths chance of picking up the Senate, you know, somewhere around there. So a pretty good chance, but definitely not uh, a lock, and not as high a percent chance as, as Joe Biden has to, to win the presidency. Uh, of course if biden wins they only need 50 seats instead of 51 uh because harris would be the tie-breaking vote as as vice president now the this uh, really interesting thing about the the senate in terms of the timing is that we may not know on the senate for a month not because of recount because of the two special elections in georgia and so both both of those races are very close with one of them basically toss up the other democrats slightly ahead and so if it comes down to like a 50 50 scenario you know 50 48 or 49 48 those Georgia seats are really going to matter and then you throw into that the the main situation uh with Collins and Gideon where they have ranked choice voting uh ranked choice voting means it's going to be four or five days before they sort that out if one of them doesn't get 50 percent um and so there too we'll have a bit of a delay uh until till that gets sorted um so I again I'd say yeah, two-thirds three-fourths chance for the Democrats but we may not know for a little while because of Georgia and Maine
0: well Professor Cannon, thank you so much for spending this time with us this afternoon. I think this has been really, really informative. And I think that it's the perfect setup for heading into the election tomorrow. So thank you for your time and insights.
2: You're welcome. Really good questions, guys. That was a a great session, I thought.
1: For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman. Produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.